Well, good morning, everyone. We welcome you to our Sunday morning roundtable discussion with the subject of Doctrine of Atonement. We're so glad you could join us all today. We have Luann visiting from the North Country again. And uh, we are recording today from the Plainfield Christian Science Church Independent, Plainfield, New Jersey, the United States of America. We welcome you all. We'll begin with our morning prayer. Here's a point from an article by Mrs. Eddy, page 143 of Divinity Course and General Collectania. To us who spoken the command, my child, give me thy heart, while it is ours to answer, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. We are called to lay ourselves daily, hourly, upon the altar of self-sacrifice, of utter dependence upon God, glorying in each awful trial, rejoicing in each drought from that cup which fits us to become participants with Jesus of his martyrdom and victory. Our power, or this power, is given us in the same extent as we entertain the sense of the Spirit which enriched him, and we come into the fullness of demonstration as we have the same mind which was in Christ Jesus. Mary Baker Eddy. Very beautiful, thank you. And the watching point, Karen. Watch number 117. Watch lest you permit error to make your thoughts stiff and rigid, when it must learn to be plastic and flexible under the Father's hand, so that all that is human may yield to the divine. <clears throat> After clay hardens, the potter can no longer mold it. When water freezes, it can be struck with a hammer. If it should melt just before the blow fell, however, the hammer would have nothing to strike. The conclusion is that when you permit thought to become fixed and rigid, your state of mind not only prevents God from guiding you, but gives error something in your thought which it can hammer. Therefore, the very attitude of mind that yields to the Father at every point and declares, quote, not my will, but thine be done, end quote, is a protection against the hammering of error. Mrs. Any knew how to bend to the blast or melt before error's onslaught, since in order to be guided by God, she had to be flexible. In stating how she was able to endure, she once said, quote, when the foot steps upon me, I bend as does the grass, and when it is lifted, I come up as naturally, end quote. This very ability to melt or bend under the blows of error was the result of her humble desire and effort to be guided by the Father in all she thought, said, and did. Jesus admonishes us to turn the other cheek. In other words, when error strikes at you, do not stiffen and resist, but bend to it, as the Master did at the crucifixion, when he implied that they could do with his flesh as they saw fit, but he would watch that they did not rob him of God, nor of the loving, humble thought through which God guided him. Our effort should be to resist error in cause rather than in effect. When we resist error in effect, we do it through fear, and the result is a stiffening because the evil seems real. When we resist error and cause, we resist the temptation to believe in its reality. If you were on a boat and you saw it about to crash into an iceberg, you would stiffen against that which seemed very real and solid. But if you discovered suddenly that the iceberg was merely a fog bank, you would relax and pass through it unharmed. The right resistance in this case would not be against the iceberg but against the temptation to believe it to be an iceberg. Thank you. Comments? 
Well, the word stiff, um, I thought there's there's 30 uh, times in the Bible where stiff-necked people is referred to. Um, in fact, one of them is, um, I have it right here, yeah, uh, in um, Exodus 30, verse 32, chapter 32, verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. And stiff-necked means obstinate, difficult to lead. <laughs> so it's definitely a point that was made in the Bible, how God cannot lead a stiff-necked thought, you know, obstinacy or argumentative. Um, and it's a protection, you know, it pointed out in that. It's a protection for us to be able to be led by God. Um Anyway, I really like watching. Yeah, and I, you know, I've said I've often find there there keys in the Bible when you, you know, if you have a stiff neck or if you have a hard heart problem or a bowel problem, you can look those words up in the Bible, and it'll often lead you to perhaps some things you need to think about and change within yourself. Bowels of mercy, a hard heart. Stiff neck, yep. Jeremy? Oh, I just was going to say, I, I just love Gilbert Carpenter's analogies. And, you know, thinking about stiffening against that, which seems very real and solid, I started thinking back to my life, all the times I was, I was fearful about things that ended up, you know, being nothing. So, it, I don't know, it just made me laugh, that idea of the iceberg being a fog bank. So. Yeah, I remember there's some kind of definition about worry about how it's usually something that never happens anyway. Mr. Evans says interest really is the interest paid on a problem you don't have. <laughs> <laughs> he had some good thoughts. My teacher said a long time ago, she said worry is ingratitude in advance. Wow. <laughs> That's really something that stuck with me. And gratitude in advance, yep. And uh, denying God's presence. And I love it. It always goes back to temptation. You know, the right resistance in this case would not be against the iceberg, but against the temptation to believe it to be an iceberg. This is why this is why the Lord's Prayer is such a masterpiece. It covers everything that you could encounter during the day. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from sin, disease, and death. It's always the temptation to believe a lie. Always that. Always goes back to that. And so to pray not to enter temptation is a mighty prayer. Isn't it? It's one we must do every day. <clears throat> we don't need to be led down this false path. These are beliefs coming for your acceptance, you to believe in them, and then you seem to manifest your belief until you wake up from the dream. And these temptations can be very uh, aggressive, can't they? They can seem very real. Yeah. Yeah. They can appear as an ailment in your body. Someone trying to t speak? Are you trying to speak? Sorry? I'm just agreeing with Gary. Gary, <laughs> I heard it. All right, sorry. Okay. Sari? Yeah, I wanted to say that I am so grateful that brought up the point about temptation seeming so real because I've been up for the last three nights really handling this thought, not my will, but thine be done. I keep holding on to and grateful that I have these truths and that the reading room is 24-7 uh, open to me to work with. So, um, so far, I really feel happy to be here that you're sharing all of this with me and it's making me uh, cry tears of joy and no longer tears of bitterness oh that's wonderful <laughs> Sari thank you beautiful 
So, well, well, thank you. And um, also, yes, what Sarah just said about thy will be done. You know, this again, this helps us to bend like the blade of grass. Um, because when you're saying, Father, this has to be this and this has to be that, it's all a tightening process of your will and and maybe not his. So whatever the prayer is, you always end with, I will be done, because God's will is, is the greatest of all. And there again, that goes back to the Lord's prayer. I will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Enable us to know, as in heaven, so on earth. God is omnipotent, supreme. And the idea... Enable, because sometimes it's not easy to do that. God enables us to do it. Florence? Well, but Jesus showed us the example, his own example, how he lived completely under God's you know, guidance, instructions. He went to pray often so that he would know on our affirm or confirm for himself this oneness with the Father. Therefore, whatever he did is according to God's will, not his will. Gave yeah. it completely up unto him. Yes, thank you. And it's it's such a beautiful example of just supreme uh, submission to God. And I think it's brought out on that watching point. What he cared about was not to lose his connection. And if he got mad at the Pharisees, if he was a fearful of what was going on, he would have lost his connection with the Father. He refused to have that happen. No matter what was presented before him, that was foremost in his mind. I and my Father are one. The Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. And the Father hath not left me alone. Christ Jesus. And when he was condemned to be crucified, and he asked God if he could be relieved of this up he followed that with but not my will but thine be done even under the worst of possible circumstances and when peter said no lord we're not going to let that happen to you he rebuked peter didn't he thou art an offense unto me yeah yeah because it was an offense to God, because it was contrary to God's will. It was his human will, which Jesus always rebuked. Yeah, it's an incredible example. And today we will talk about, you know, maintaining, gaining and maintaining your oneness with the Father. Because there's no greater thing, no greater objective in life. Um, and it's possible. That's what's. That's why why Christ came, so we could do this as He did. Now Louise sent something um, from lectures and articles by Kimball on Christian Science, um, which goes along with the watching point, and it is this quote: "Metaphysical healing has to do with erring beliefs, not with persons. The only treatment that is safe." and that is entitled to heal is the one that has no thought or admission except of the one infinite body. How important then to declare that the patient is neither person, place, nor thing, but is simply a suggestion or claim that man is material and is sick. The simpler a treatment, the better. There is no need of labor treatment. I have heard the statement, she handles error without gloves. She goes for it with hammer and tongues. If Eric could talk about it, it would probably say, I do not care a particle for that kind of treatment. That kind of treatment means that I am real and must be hammered. And that is all I pretend to be. The only treatment that I am afraid of is the one that makes nothing of me. Not enough to hammer. I am afraid of the destructive calm of the one who knows that I am nothing. Now you see, that is certainly what Jesus did, isn't it? He had that. Um, that's not just idly saying there's nothing, God is all. 
but it is understanding the principle behind it. So. And that is the dominion over the false belief. It's not a, you know, la di da pie in the sky. It's a very real dominion over the false belief. Yeah, it's understanding. Yeah, not a bland denial, but an understanding. (laughs) In uh, Jasmine's forum, um, she writes, am I trying to be a spiritual person or am I spirit? Let all of the preoccupation with this world of era fall away. Let all the entanglements with sin cease. How? By appreciating that there is nothing at all in immortal life, soul, to call attention to this world of finite existence. And then a quote from Science and Health. Jesus, the Christ's mission, was to reveal the science of celestial being and to prove what God is and what he does for man. Mary Baker Eddy truly understood there is a miss camouflaging celestial being. It begins to lift when the belief in a personal sense of self starts to dissolve. When the delusion of person is gone, then an individual remains only a soul and witnesses spirit everywhere. At one minute is a synonym of soul, which is forever spirit, the all in all. You know, personal sense is the big bugaboo. Mrs. Eddy says that. It's over and over and over again. Someone uh, one church was going to count all the times Mrs. Eddy mentioned personal sense in the first edition. And what is personal sense? Selfhood apart from God? Yes. Thinking of personality instead of an individual, a spiritual individuality. Yes. You're seeing yourself with a selfhood apart from God as a certain personality. And that just keeps you going around in circles, orbiting out there without the without God. Genesis 2. The mist. Genesis 2. It's the mist. Genesis 2. The mist arose. That's what did the whole thing. The mist. <laughs> so in putting off this personal sense of yourself and your person, so-called personality, and your whims and this, that, and the next thing, um, putting off the old man for the new, you will be able to establish your at-one-ment with the Father. And that doesn't always come easily, but it must come, it must. And it requires only one thing. What does Mrs. Eddy tell us it requires? Constant self-immolation. Constantly burning out any personal sense of self. So we have to be alert 24-7. Now, again, I'm, I'm going to return to Florence's readings on Wednesday because what was a no and yes to me was a complete, like a, a treatment or a guide and um, the atonement with the Father. Um, often I speak during the atonement lessons on Bigdale Young's article, Oneness. And I can't say enough about that. And hopefully by now you're all very familiar with that, that you've studied it, read it, listened to it, and understand it, because it is excellent. But today we're going to talk about some other things. And this, no and yes, about prayer. Prophet and apostle have glorified God in secret prayer, and he has rewarded them openly. Prayer can neither change God nor bring his designs into mortal modes. But it can and does change our modes and our false sense of life, love, and truth, uplifting us to him. Such prayer humiliates, purifies, 
and quickens activity in the direction that is unerring. True prayer is not asking God for love. It is learning to love and to include all mankind in one affection. Prayer is the utilization of the love wherewith he loves us. Prayer begets an awakened desire to be and do good. It makes new and scientific discoveries of God, of his goodness and power. It shows us more clearly than we saw before what we already have and are. And most of all, it shows us what God is. Advancing in this light, we reflect it. And this light reveals the pure mind pictures in silent prayer. As photography grasps the solar light to portray the face of pleasant thought. What but silent prayer can meet the demands? Pray without ceasing. I, that is just so beautiful. I, you know, I'm sure I read it, but I don't remember it as I did as it was read on Wednesday. This is what prayer is. You know, when people complain their prayer isn't answered, well, look, look at what this is. This is about a transformation. And and in that transformation, you you get, and that's what she's saying here, you reflect God, you you get that oneness with the Father as you do the things that she, you know, it's not asking God for love, it is learning to love and to include all mankind in one affection. And then prayer is the utilization of the love wherewith he loves us. Not the human love, this new divine love that we're coming upon. And why does it and how does a true prayer include all mankind? Because to love God is to love mankind. You can't do one without the other. Yeah, and when you're when you're handling error, it's neither person, place, nor thing. So when you're handling a false belief, you're handling it for everybody. Everybody, everywhere, is God's image and likeness in truth. And if you're not, you should be. We've told that story about Mrs. Evans when she had this bad case of flu or something, and, and she had a very good practitioner. It wasn't going away. And finally, the practitioner asked, well, are you including everyone in your prayer? <laughs> Mrs. Evans said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, that's the problem. And when she did that, she was healed. This isn't a selfish thing where we're just trying to create this little bubble of perfection in our own life. I like the fact also that it's it's bringing uplifting us to Him, and that and then also it humiliates, purifies, and quickens activity. Thank you. Humiliation and the purification. Yes, and and what does that mean to be humiliated? <laughs> <laughs> well. Where's, where's your pride? Yes, thank you. Stripped of your pride. <laughs> when you're humiliated, you're kind of whoops. <laughs> goes hand in hand with self-immolation. What was that? I said humiliation and self-immolation, I think, kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, yep, yep. You're giving up that whole false sense of yourself. And sometimes that can be very humiliating, especially when someone tells you about it. <laughs> and that's where you have to bend. And then not my will, but thine, Father, and, and grow under that. As, as I read or Gary read a few weeks ago about the, the lambs, you know, can stray yearningly. But the sheep, what happens to the sheep? They follow. They, they, they come, under the, rod. They come yeah. under the rod. And they don't get carried. Yeah. They, they carry themselves. 
and the and the stern rod this, of love. <laughs> yeah, and it's in the lesson this week on atonement. Jesus uncovered and rebuked sin before he could cast it out. Of a sick woman, he said that Satan had bound her, and he said to Peter, mm -hmm. "That's what we just talked about. Thou art an offense to me." He, he humiliated Peter. Yep. <laughs> he humiliated Peter. Publicly. Mm-hmm. And Peter took it. This is why he grew. I mean, to me, that's one of the most important things I see in people in the church, especially when they come closer and start doing more things, and if they're if they're willing and able to to take correction, or if their pride is too great. And if their pride is too great, they will go. And it's wonderful because that keeps our church pure, <laughs> pure of prideful, arrogant thinking. I thank God for that. It, it, I don't have, we don't have to excommunicate or we, anything. We've, we've never kicked anybody out no, of the church. never have kicked a soul out. Only their own pride and, Everyone and is arrogance welcome here. Yep, <laughs> has taken them out. Right. Every, everyone is welcome here, but pride Every and arrogance. humble heart is welcome. Thank you. And and Florence, what have you said about Christian science that it, you know, that who who addresses what that this business of pride, right? How can you be prideful? Um, it, it, it's just something you 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 know you have to give up, you know, sense of self and it tells us self-sacrifice, self-immolation, all of those things. There's no way you can be at one with God and be prideful. No. Absolutely. Which is why a lot of people are still not one with God. <laughs> <laughs> no, they'll get there sooner or later. They'll get yeah. there. Missy, humility is the stepping stone to stepping stone to a higher understanding of deity. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. And that's what kept all these uh, people in the uh, Pharisees away from Jesus. I never knew this one line before from our lesson that they wanted to believe. They did believe on him, but they didn't confess it because they loved the praise more of men. Thank you. And that was I didn't realize that so many really wanted to follow him. Yes. Thank you. And yeah, um, going along with all this. Florence and I were talking about that scene in The Chosen yeah. where um, what, right, he was healing the, coming down through the roof, right? And, and Florence, what happened? Those Pharisees were doing what? Oh, they were banging on the window sill. Hey, by whose authority do you teach this? And, <laughs> and Jesus wasn't even looking at them. Yeah, he and what, wasn't even looking at them. He just looked up at the heart that was faithful and said, your faith is beautiful. Thank you. Yes, that's the demonstration of him passing through all of this stuff. He could have gotten upset. He could have addressed them. Mm -hmm. He could have said something, but he stayed. He knew it. he lose his healing power. He stayed totally yeah. calm, and he saw the beautiful woman up on the top of the roof. It said, "Your faith is beautiful," and he ignored all the Pharisees carrying on. He gave them the destructive calm. <laughs> you yes. Know, <laughs> yes, that's right. Darn it, um, <laughs> and talk about humiliating. He, you know, that what one of those chapters in Matthew, he just laces them up, down, and sideways. So several times I was asked to read that just to make sure I knew that, you know, it wasn't Christ going around all the time with this beatific halo around his head. He knew how to say what he needed to say when necessary. So, and he did. I like what he said in The Chosen to Mary later about how, you know, don't worry about which men other men say are important. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Yep, it's always the heart. And that that's why, you know, when people are so impressed with the wrong things, uh, you know, poof. the 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 degrees or the looks or how much money or how big the house is. 
And that's what is impressive to them. You know, you're chasing after the wrong thing and you will continue to be miserable till you stop. You look upon the heart. It's all that matters. And that that heart of one expressing the Christ is always beautiful. Always. Jonathan Rumi said that was the most difficult scene he'd ever had to do was when he was talking, teaching to all those people standing out the door. Mm-hmm. He, it was very difficult. He felt so humbled and not worthy to, to take. He just, it was very humbling to him and he just was difficult for him to get. He did a beautiful job, obviously, but he said that was the most difficult scene he'd ever did. Thank you. And and that would be true because, um, and that's why he did it so well, because he knew he couldn't do it himself. He had to get rid of his selfhood apart from God and let God use him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's always a good place to be uh, where you're just, you are humiliated. You're just stripped of everything. You are just flat on your face. (laughs) Yeah. 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 The, those three things that Mrs. Eddie says about Christ Jesus and uh, retrospection and introspection, I, I keep coming back to it. The holy humility, unworldly, unworldliness, and self-abandonment. I just love mm-hmm. it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes I've wondered with this lesson, it seems so daunting in a way, doctor. I mean, you know, Jesus could be one with God, but how, you know, there's no way I can possibly even come close to that. But there are ways, and, and this is the way, and that's why I love this this thing from No and Yes so much, because it tells you, and as you do these things, the best you can, <clears throat> it starts to happen. It begins to percolate. And, and it, it's... What is it? The miracle of grace, right? <laughs> Only the grace of God can do this. But but you have to start out with a sincere desire that you want it more than anything else. I remember it was actually, it was a sermon by Charles Stanley. And he spoke on that. And I will never forget that because I know I've been in science a long time. But the whole sermon was, you, do you desire this more than anything else? And at that point, I didn't. And then it was like, okay, well, if you don't, then you don't, and you're not going to get the results. But I was, I was um, humbled and, uh, what's the word? Humiliated. <laughs> yeah, I guess I see my own thought where I was with that. I never heard it. Put just that way. It's all in Christian science. I'm sure Mrs. Evans said it a million times, but it was just the way he said it that day. It was whole sermon was devoted to that. Do you seek him with your whole heart, mind, soul, with all? Is it the most important thing ever? Are you willing to put everything else aside? And that doesn't mean you have to become a monk. It just means that it's, it is the most important, and therefore you will spend the time and the effort to do it and the results come and Mrs. Eddie says she has written it's easier to desire truth than to rid oneself of error but to rid ourselves of error is what is required if you really love the truth if you really love God so it's, you know, it's not an easy task, but it's possible. It's possible because Jesus proved it. Others have proved it for us. And we can prove it for ourselves. And I know many of you are. Yeah, that's the thing. You are. And, you know, you think some of this stuff is so daunting or beyond you, but you just keep working on it every day and you find out, no, it's not. It's your true, true sense of being. So take that prayer from no and yes or those direct directions from no and yes and 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 model it it's absolutely doable um you can do this 
And as you do this, as was just said by Florence, you, you begin to reflect the light. And that's, that's demonstrating your oneness. And then the light reveals the pure mind pictures. And your whole experience changes. It's, I it, think also, um, you know, when, say, you're working, you're at work, you know, a corporation or whatever you're doing. I think what I used to do is like, as if you're living away from God the rest of the day, and then maybe at night you pray a little bit and sleep, or in the morning you pray <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but it, you know, that I think Mr. Evans is it that said, even if it's a few minutes throughout your day, you just connect, you know, just like Jesus, Jesus did. I yes. think it's that unceasing prayer, you know, all having God in your heart all day, you know, I don't know how, how best to express it, but I, I feel like to live aside from God the rest of your day, that's not it. It's, it's that connection, be, be, being aware of that connection throughout the day. Thank you. Yes. And it used to be, and I've heard people say this, you know, well, you, you, know, you do your work for God and then you go to work. Well, hello. <laughs> the whole thing should be you're demonstrating your oneness with God, whatever you come to meet at work. Your employer is God. Um, everything goes back to God, whatever you are doing. If you are a teacher or a business person or a mother or a father or whatever it is that you do, it's all God. And, and if you do that, then you, you demonstrate your oneness with the Father throughout the day, yes. And if you feel you're getting off or getting glamoured or mesmerized by the things of the world, then you take a moment. As that other statement in, that Florence read from, I forget what miscellaneous writings are, but three times daily, right? Three times a day. Three times a day, I retire to seek the divine blessing on yes. the sick and sorrowing. Yeah. Yes. My face toward Jerusalem yeah. of truth and love. We can at least do three times a day, and hopefully you can do more than that. It only takes a moment, and you're always thinking something. So mm -hmm. why not the truth rather than... Then the era and bless the situation you're in, just as Jesus did. How terrible it might have been. I mean, what could have been worse than being faced with a crucifixion? But he he maintained his poise and his peace. And he continued teaching to the very end. Mm -hmm. yeah, to the very end. He didn't stop it. It didn't didn't slow him down. For an everlasting victory that we still talk about a lot. And people have found as many of you probably know, you know, people who pray without ceasing do a much better job at their job. They're more aware of what needs to be done, and God guides them clearly as to the best way to get things done. And the best way to handle people and situations. It can only bless and benefit us to be ceasing, unceasingly in prayer. Yeah, Carol does that all the time. Carol still works. And, um, you know, she's always talking to God, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and another thing, you know, very often you'll hear gossip around the office or something like that. And, and I just stop and I say, no, this is not the truth. This is a child of God. And these are also children of God. And it can't, can't harm and uh, but anything that comes up like that during the day, just to be on our toes. And that's why Carol's indispensable to that job. She's never going to retire. Because <laughs> they can't do without her. Because why? Because of her Christly thought. And now she's learning who and what she is. And when they ask her to do things on nights that she, we have services or other things, she says no. And they just have to do without her till she can do it. And we all must have that within us, putting God first always. You make sure you have time to do your prayer when choosing a job, when whatever you do, again, do you have the time to, to keep your thought 
upright on God? Are you just going to be running around like a mad person? Be selective. And God will help you with that. And you will find your right place of seeking employment. One, one point that's such a trap. In uh, Bruce used to say he didn't know how to say no to people asking him to do kind things. All right. <laughs> and and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I realized when he says watch his arguments, beware of of being choked with you get so many requests of what to do you know to know every day you can't be choked with so many good things to do and you know the difference what not what to do thank you very much she says, we were being strangled the vicious type or being smothered by the oh you shouldn't do this because you're gonna get hurt or choked so all those errors we try to come at people. Thank you. Very, very true. We all, and we all must learn to learn how to say no. It's not bad to say no. You you value who and what you are and your time with the Father, and you need to say no. You say no. I had no boundaries before coming here. <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. You got yourself ragged. But it sure is. It's a lot easier to have boundaries when when it's you know, God making them for you. So. Thank you. Yes. It's interesting too the thought of using place to pray for a job. And then once you get that job, the thought that you're on your own with it, you know, mm -hmm. this is not, not true at all. Not true at all. And there's, there's not this separation of, oh, well, your church work and then your other work. It's all one, all working for God. I used to think, oh, well, you had to be a practitioner. No, I mean, we're all practitioners. Mm -hmm studying science you are a practitioner maybe your name isn't listed but you are and you will attract people who need your help and you should help them with the christ that's your job job of blessing everyone wherever you go that's your work so jeremy you you kind of wrote about this on the forum a bit uh, about oh yeah just uh looking up about reconciliation and 1828 webster's dictionary says that it's the act of reconciling parties at variance and a renewal of friendship after disagreement or enmity. And that reminded me of uh, James 4.4. 4. It says, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with, uh, with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Hymn hmm. 2.25 came to me, O Lord, I would delight in thee, and on my care depend. To thee in every trouble flee, my best, my ever friend. So then it just started getting me thinking about how that mission, that ministry of reconciliation that Christ Jesus gave to us is to remind mankind that God is our best friend and the world is no friend at all. And that just made me really happy to think about that. Yeah. And then, you know, as I took it a step further, I was thinking about the cause of Christian sciences, Mrs. Eddie gave us the ability to show people how to prove it to themselves that God is the best friend. So that's pretty wonderful. Yes, thank you. And the reconciliation comes when we allow our thought to be lifted up to God, not God dropping his thought down to the human level. No. And this is a this is a lesson for us also in our human relationships, isn't it? It's, that's why Mrs. Eddie has a whole chapter on marriage. In every marriage, one partner is bound to be more spiritually minded than the other at any point in time. And through the temptation is to reconcile, make peace where there is no peace. And the temptation is for the more spiritually minded to drop down and acquiesce to the less spiritually minded. And that is a big mistake, isn't it? Right. Because that's not true reconciliation. That's a bad compromise. It's the job of the more spiritually minded person to lift the other if they will be lifted. And that, you know, God's mercy is forever. He's forever 
waiting for us to lift our thought <laughs> if we haven't done so yet. I, I was also I was touched by what Jacob wrote about my inspiration is not always exactly on topic, but in a way I hope it is. I looked over the streets, the many houses, and I realized that most likely in those houses prescription medicines were used and many pills of all kind were being swallowed day after day, year after year. The hypnotic thraldom, thraldom of all of this hit me and overwhelmed me. The whole world trusted only on matter and believed in matter and evil as the only substance in reality. And then he said, you know, he felt a, a sense of sadness, it, it, how God might feel if God could feel. And we, we do know that Christ Jesus wept, right? <laughs> and he, he wept because they weren't getting it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I know from what people have told me that this isn't a far-fetched thing, all these people taking their pills every day. Many of you have told me this, you know, when you are out in the world and you people are taking all kinds of things to get through the day. So this is why we stand. This is why we shout it from the rooftops. We must voice the truth about God and man and let everyone know the truth so they can be free from a false dependency. And there's a big, Carrie sent me some beautiful things this week, but one from William McKinsey, I always love him, about rejoicing in protection adequate. And he talks about the importance of joy, the joy that God gives. Joy is the great antagonist of that mental malpractice by which the over-serious may be threatened at times, with which the wicked may agree, and to which the fearful may yield. The glad heart always has splendid resisting power against its assaults. To be, pull of, to be full of joy is to have a defense impregnable. And then it says, Christ Jesus is that most in that most loving address wherein he set forth the safety of the branches which abide in the vine, said, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. It was the characteristic of the Son to attribute all power to the Father and to do nothing of himself. When man gains the Christ Spirit, he then ascribes all power to God, that is, to good, hence his joy, which cannot be invaded or destroyed. His peace of mind enables him to say, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. The conclusion then is that we do well if we rejoice evermore, also that it is unwise to whisper and wonder, to imagine and guess what a cult evil might be able to do just as if we thought there was no God let us be wise for it is the fool who hath said in his heart there is no God real joy is the cure for such folly for the joyous heart finds cause for thanking and loving God hour by hour and this gladness brings companionship with the Christ the divine truth which overcomes the world so remember this. This is part of your at oneness. If you lose your joy, what are you to do? Stop being grateful. Yes. Start to be grateful. Remember the things that God has done for you. And ha handle the animal magnetism that's whispering in your ear that makes makes you think that you're unhappy, and tell it, go to hell. <laughs> where you came from you have nothing to do with me i'm a joyous happy child of god and i won't listen to your negative whisperings always maintain your joy bicknell young says if you're not joyful you're not practicing the science mm -hmm. now we're going to end on another very beautiful article by kate buck that carrie also sent and we will start it's a little some of it's a little longer than usual. So, From a 1914 Sentinel entitled, Passing Through the Midst of Them. When, after the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus returned to Nazareth and upon going into the synagogue to read, claimed that the words of the prophet Isaiah were that day fulfilled in him, 
it aroused the wrath of those who heard, that he should claim with so great confidence such mighty things for himself. Was not this the carpenter's son? Had he not grown up among the other boys of Nazareth? Was he not one of them, and quite as humble in origin, education, and environment? Without honor in his own country, and despite the evident resentment of his auditors, Jesus continued to affirm that he was, in truth, the one sent to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Marveling at his gracious words, even though incensed by them, the record tells us that they, with human emotions of jealousy, envy, suspicion, and malice, seething in their thoughts because he claimed superiority to them, his own townspeople, thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But we further read that he passed through the midst of them and went his way. The very simplicity of the latter statement brings with it a sense of power and confidence that gave to the writer when she in it, it when she read it in connection with one of the lesson sermons, an illuminated perception of the quiet grandeur and dignity of the Nazarene as saying nothing fearing nothing, he quietly, steadily, safely went his way, knowing who it was that went before him. Undisturbed by the attempt to destroy him, or the treachery of those who, humanly speaking, should have been his most devoted supporters and friends, he went about his father's business, serene in the consciousness that his will would in any case be done, and that there was no other will. Alone with God was this true child of his, absolutely at one with the power that produced him. Hence, he feared neither scorn nor misunderstanding. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.